Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is in the process of writing her 10th novel in what has become a beloved mystery series. Here she is to introduce herself. My name is Iona Wishaw, and I am a retired both youth worker, and then I went into teaching, and then I went into high school administration, and I retired as a high school principal here in Vancouver. I have a master's degree in writing from UBC, which I got way back in 88, and I was already in my 40s there, so I was already probably the oldest person in my master's class. And then I didn't write at all again, except for poetry and some short fiction. I had a very successful children's book in about 1990. I realized when I was going to retire that I really did want to write. I had no concept that I could write an entire book. And I just thought, well, I better just start by writing 400 words a day. So by the time I retired, I had most of my first book already kind of first drafty. So writing has been a goal my whole life. My mother was a writer. I heard the typewriter clickety-clacking through most of my childhood, and uh, it annoyed me very much. And, uh, you know, I grew up in, uh, I was born here, but I grew up in Mexico uh, for a large uh, part of my childhood, and then I went to high school and university in the United States, and then I came back here. A Lethal Lesson was a finalist for the 2022 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. In my conversation with Iona, we talk about the real-life person who inspired Wayne Winslow, the protagonist of Iona's books. We also discuss why she decided to set her books in the Kootenays. Here's my conversation with Iona Wishaw. So what's happened here is none of the teachers have turned up at the school. And so Lane, uh, always socially responsible, decides she's better nip out and just find out uh, what's going on. So she arrives at the cottage and it's cold. There's no smoke coming out of the chimney. The snow came over the tops of her boots and she could feel it settling down inside them. The soft pitted mounds of new snow on the porch indicated there'd been a good deal of coming and going on the porch before the snowfall. She knocked on the door, calling out, Miss Scott? Miss Keeling? She looked around and down toward the lake. Neighbors were far enough away across fields and stands of trees that they were barely visible. They would certainly not hear if anyone were in distress. Almost as an afterthought, Lane turned the doorknob as she was about to go down to her car. The door creaked open as if it had been expecting her. She knocked again, looking into the darkness through the crack she had opened. Hello, Miss Scott? Is anyone here? Hearing nothing, she pushed the door open, and even in the murky light, sifting through the closed curtains, she could see that things were very much amiss. Books had been thrown to the floor, a chair knocked on its side, and a small wooden table overturned, broken crockery on the floor where it had slipped off in the melee. It was at that moment that she heard a faint and agonizing groan. Hello? Lane cried in alarm. She pulled the curtains back so she could see better, saw no one in the shambles of the sitting room, and rushed to what she assumed was a bedroom door. She pushed it open. 
The bed was made, a clean chamber pot visible under it, and the room was empty and appeared undisturbed. She had no time to register what this might mean. Pushing open the next door, she saw with horror that a woman was on the floor, lying partway under a quilt she had evidently pulled off the bed. Miss Scott! Lane stooped down and put her hand on the woman's shoulder. What happened? Where are you hurt? Miss Scott's eyes fluttered momentarily, but she could not seem to open them. She made a sound like attempted speech and then lay still, wheezing, her breath coming with difficulty. Lane looked frantically around the bedroom, which she saw had also been knocked about, and pulled a folded blanket from the floor where it had fallen, adding it to the quilt around Miss Scott. It was clear the teacher could not get up. With infinite delicacy, Lane lifted the woman's head and positioned a pillow under it. The side of Miss Scott's head felt ominously sticky. With a lurch of anxiety, Lane saw there were smears of dark blood on her hand. There, I'm going to phone for an ambulance, Miss Scott, and I will try to make something hot for you to drink. Lane was reluctant to leave her, even for a moment. I'm just going into the kitchen to telephone and to see about that drink, she said again, trying for a tone of efficiency and confidence that she was far from feeling. Propping the bedroom door open so that Miss Scott would know she was nearby, Lane looked around the battered sitting room. There was a small wooden desk in the corner. The phone had been knocked onto the floor. She restored it to the desk and then lifted the receiver and clicked several times. It was dead, just as Lucy had said. Swearing under her breath, Lane pulled at the cord. It came away in her hand and dangled uselessly where it had clearly been pulled violently from the wall. She leaned back against the desk, her hand over her mouth, beginning to take in the enormity of her situation. It looked very much as though Miss Scott had been attacked. She would have to get her to the hospital. Could she get her up on her own and down to the car? She tried to imagine negotiating those slippery steps with the dead weight of a woman unable to move. She went to the porch and looked about, which neighbor was closest. She could see the smoke rising above the stand of trees to the south. Someone was home there, at least. She could but pray that they would be on the telephone. She had a momentary panic at the prospect of finding the neighbor had no phone and having to drive from house to house until she found one. Why wasn't every house on the telephone? It was 1947, for God's sake. She could drive up to Bale's store, but that would take a good 15 minutes and there and back in these conditions. So I'll stop there because I just wanted to really kind of show what kind of non-technical world that was, you know. And so my first my first official question for you is a, an icebreaker question. And it is, if you could read only one book or watch one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? That's not the easiest question. No, I don't start easy. <laughs> um, I would go for something big and classic. You know, I would go for a Dickens or uh, the Ring trilogy, you know, Tolkien, probably something like that, because there would be much to explore for a long, long time. Yes. And uh, uh, as for the films, you know, I think I might go with the films that were made, I think, in the early 80s of Dorothy L. Sayers' um, uh, Lord Peter Mysteries, Peter Whimsey Mysteries. I am not familiar with those ones. Oh, 
They're the, they're my favorites really probably, you know, I mean, I read Nancy Drew as a child, uh, as people do, uh, certainly in my generation, but you know, Dorothy L. Sayers to me is the, is the mistress of, of mystery writing, you know, and she wrote her last book, I think in the mid 1930s. Oh, wow. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about mysteries and uh i watch i watch a lot of mysteries i like the british ones the best um and as i was reading uh, a lethal lesson and just being totally won over by lane i thought avira which of course is uh inspired by a book and i thought geez lane could be a character in a tv show she has all of the pizzazz and charisma and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about lane and where that character came from uh, I can indeed talk about that because that's the one thing I'm quite clear on. Um, when I began that little exercise of thinking, well, I'd better write a book before I retire or write a little bit before I had to retire, I was writing 400 words a day. And the very first day that I sat down, I uh, thought, well, what am I going to write? And I began to write about my mother uh, walking into this house that we owned in the Kootenays, uh, when I say we, I was a child, um, the very first time she bought it, because that house was the most wonderful thing to her. And uh, though we were away from it for almost my entire life after we left it when I was five, it nevertheless was the house that lived in everyone's consciousness, you know, and, and she died sort of saying the house, the house, your father made me sell the house kind of thing. Almost immediately that I saw her walking into that house and I'm typing away my 400 words, Lane began to take shape uh, as slightly separate from my mother. In that my mother, by the time she bought that house, had two children, was married. Uh, Lane is unmarried. I put it back a couple of years, so it's just after the war. And uh, I decided to give her a background in intelligence because there are, my mother herself worked in intelligence uh, when she lived in South Africa. Uh, my grandfather was a spy his entire life. And um I just discovered recently that he had three brothers and two of them work for MI6 as well. So, uh, you know, I'm quite uh, uh, generously equipped with spies. You know, Lane began to take shape almost immediately. So she was definitely inspired by my mother because my mother was one of those uh, classic women who'd been through the war who, uh, you know, of course, there were all kinds of laws in those days. She couldn't have gone and gotten a, a loan on her own and she couldn't have, uh, you know, there are all kinds of things she couldn't have done without a husband's signature. But none of that would have mattered to her because she was an absolute towering power. And um, I think a lot of those women who came out of the war were like that, you know, they were not daunted really by anything. Things were a nuisance, but they, they, you know, they brushed past them. And my mother was certainly like that. You know, she was a very, very powerful person. Um, I made Lane slightly more sensible than my mother, who was very, uh, um, risk prone she enjoyed uh, adventure all at all times 
And so, yeah, th that's really where it came from. You know, my mother for sure. And my mother also, you know, as I go through the books, I'm giving her more and more of the qualities that my mother had. My mother came from a quite upper class uh, upbringing in, in um you know, she came from an English family, but she had this real touch for, with the common man. You know, she really enjoyed living here. Um, when she lived in Windermere, she joined the fire department. They had no idea she was 75 when she joined it, but she lied about her age. And, uh, you, you know, she liked being, you know, among the kind of um, rural people who were nothing like the people that she grew up with. Um, she was also a brilliant linguist. She was brilliant, period. Uh, and so as I go through, I assign more and more things to Lane that were kind of like my mother, probably never the absolute madness that my mother did. She hitchhiked to Alaska when I was three with truck drivers, leaving me and my brother with sort of a housekeeper, not telling my dad. So when he came back there, she wasn't. And somebody said, oh, yeah, she's hitchhiked to Alaska kind oh of thing. Goodness. I know. So Lane doesn't do that kind of thing. But, you know, she takes risks other ways. You know, she's courageous. Yeah. Yeah. So how many Lane Winslow books are there now? There are now uh, nine. This was number nine that came out in April. Uh, and I can recommend it. Um, yes, do recommend it. <laughs> uh, and uh, 10 will come out uh, in just now, in the, the coming April. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I've gone through, I've spent more time. I never was interested in the 40s. I was shocked by, you know, finding myself writing a book about the 1940s because I, I just never was interested in it. But somehow I became very interested in it and about all the, you know, what was going on in the world at the time and what you had, you know, no matter what era you live in, you're in the most modern possible time you know, that you can be in kind of thing. And I was so intrigued by what that was then, because I was born in 48. So, you know, the, the, the shades of it were still part of my childhood. And I was very familiar with um, British people of that post-war period. My dad was a, was a bomber pilot. And my mom, as I said, had done some espionage in, um, or some intelligence work, let's call it that, espionage, in South Africa. Um, and of course, she never told me much about it. And then when she did, she was close to the time of her death. And I thought, why have you been writing books about other things? That's what you should have written about, because only you can write that story, you know. Oh, it's not very interesting, she says to me, kind of thing. So um, anyway, we ventured far off your question. But I'm focusing more on the history of the area. So so in this book, I, I became very interested in the Sinaiks people who used to live up and down the Kootenays um, and still do, but not in the numbers that they did before uh, the turn of the 20th century. And, um, you know, in this one, I was very intrigued by rural one-room schools. And my brother, in fact, told me while I was writing this book that he, in fact, had attended the Balfour School and loved it. He said he had the kindest teacher in the world. Wow. I mean, did you, when you started Lane and, and you started on this journey of writing these books, did you imagine like you would be in book 10? Like, did you see it as a series? 
I saw it as a series uh, only when I had really finished the first book, which I self-published actually under a completely different name. Uh, and then drove around with it like a, an Amway salesperson, you know. And then luckily, uh, I began a second book uh, knowing I didn't have any money to self-publish it. You know, it cost me quite a bit to self-publish the first one. So I thought, nah. Uh, but I'm going to write the second one because I feel like there's another story here. When I'd done the second one and when uh, Touchwood kindly bought both books and gave me a contract for them, that was when I began to think, you know, there's probably a third. And what I'm finding now is that I, I get to a certain point in the book that I'm currently writing. So I'm writing one now for 2024. You know, I already have, you know, feelers or brain things are going out, beginning to look at, you know, what will what will happen next? And, you know, you get all kinds of really helpful suggestions from the public. Um, and I don't mean that facetiously, like this came because a historian wrote me a book, a, a letter after one of the earlier books and said, I just love the tone of your books in terms of the period that you're writing about. And, um, you know, she was a retired history professor and she was a kind of a specialist on one room schools, uh, in Canada. So she's, I said, well, yeah, let's have a look at that. So she sent me reams of wonderful material that I could use, you know, research papers she'd done and others had done. And, um, uh, you know, each each of these books began to come together because there were people who had ideas. Somebody said to me, well, Lane has a sister. Like, how come we never really hear about her sister? Well, wait till 2024. You know, Constable Terrell rides a motorcycle that was suggested to me by a man who's an expert on vintage motorcycles. So I now have all these people that I can access. You know, it's it's quite fun. So, you know, I didn't see at the beginning that it would be this to be honest that first day I wasn't even sure if it was going to be a short story or a poem you know really um and now I sort of go well you know Louise Penny's written what 20 books I'm barely at 10 I have to chop chop <laughs> um I wanted to ask about the Kootenays uh because I lived in Nelson and I worked for the Nelson Star. So I, I appreciated when the Nelson Daily News was mentioned. I have friends who worked for the Nelson Daily News. And and you've shared a little bit about maybe what inspired that place as setting. But could you talk a little bit more about your connection to that place and, and the desire to set a mystery in the Kootenays? Because we have, you know, Ian Rankin writes mysteries set in Glasgow. We have mysteries set in Vancouver and Seattle and you know, gritty urban centers, but we don't often get mysteries set in places like uh, King's Cove in places that no one's been to. So why did you settle so deeply in that place for the, these books? I think that has an awful lot to do with uh, the fact that my life was very peripatetic. You know, my dad was a geologist uh, I moved to the place that is King's Cove, um, uh, whose name I've changed to to protect the residents, really, although everybody seems to know where it is. Um, <laughs> you know, when I was two and then when I was five or six, we were already leaving to spend most of the year every year in Mexico. But nevertheless, you know, I lived there till I was 
um, maybe 13 in the sense that, you know, we'd come back and spend every sort of summer, early fall there and then go back to Mexico. But each time we went to Mexico, we went to a different place. So my childhood was, was um, in a lot of ways about yearning to be in one place and yearning for the place that we left kind of thing. So a lot of my yearning was I want to go back to, to, to British Columbia and live in that beautiful house with that wonderful lawn and the view of the lake and all those nice old people who gave me cake. And that was, you know, what I discovered when I was writing is that I could go in my mind through all of those places that I lived, all the paths through the forest, to everybody's house. And, and I could bring it all kind of back, you know, that you can't go home anymore thing really uh, in some ways you can, you know, you can be back there and um, I think that was a, a lot of it. And some of it was inspired by later things. Uh, for example, it became during the 70s and 80s, it became kind of a, um, you know, there were people with huge kind of uh, hidden marijuana plantations up somewhere in the hills behind where I had lived. And, you know, there there was this kind of scent of criminality there which has that clash of this of this innocent beautiful place and kind of dark things going on in the background so i think that made me think you know if somebody ran amok of one of these guys growing marijuana they could end up dead um and that's when it's i think that's when the idea sort of came to me now of course the period i'm writing about that's not what's happening there that doesn't come until the 70s but um Anyway, I, I think that's why, you know, partly because I could dwell there while I'm writing and all up and down the lake, which I love so much. Mm -hmm. um, and partly because uh, I think there's this wonderful contrast of uh, darkness with innocence um, there. And obviously, I can't kill off too many people in Kings Cove because there aren't <laughs> that many. Um, and really, uh, yeah. And the other thing is to bring back the people who were so important in my early life, like uh, the Armstrongs, you know, in the post office. Uh, they, they're ma modeled almost wholesale from the people who actually ran the little post office when I was a child. So, um, you know, it's wonderful to spend more time with them and imagine what it would have been like to know them then. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned uh, the the future pot industry that, of course, comes to play such a role in in more modern day uh, Nelson and area because I think you you mentioned it briefly, like in passing in Lethal Lesson, and I was kind of like, oh, look at that! This kind of like periscoping into the future, and uh, there's all these moments of that in in this book. That which felt I slightly cheaty, McCheaty, but but <laughs> the moment was there, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. And so as we've mentioned, these these books are set in the 40s. And uh, it, it, you have all these details like we see in your reading where, you know, Lane goes to make a phone call and there's no phone. But then she also has to worry, are there phones in the neighboring houses? And we come to learn there's no uh, phone in the schoolhouse as well. And and that compared to how we see crimes being solved now, it's just such a, a contrast. But there was also these elements you were working with where, I mean, these are to me these are feminist mysteries and you're also dealing with racism with constable terrell as well and 
these are things we see being dealt with now in contemporary mysteries. So it was kind of reflect refreshing to see it being done in more a more historical mystery. But I wondered about using those lenses for the book and the challenges of working those in, but also still being true to the period you're writing about. Well, I'm not sure really how much challenge there was. I know I was asked one time about, uh, you know, kind of the role of political correctness, you know, as you write about various things. And, um, you know, I had to say, and this came from a fairly young person, you know, who who felt that, you know, women were very oppressed in those days and, and, and she couldn't quite believe Lane because Lane was so clearly independent. And, um, you know, I think... I think she assumed that everybody would have been racist and, and all of that. But, you know, uh, life was complex then as it in, is now. Uh, and, um, you know, as I said, that person could never have met any of those post-war, post-war women that I'm thinking of, like my aunts and my mom and all those people. Uh, they were very powerful. You know, there I, I don't think there was much in the way of Black people in Nelson, uh, uh, you know, people don't, re- people who live there don't really recall seeing too many people of color in general, um, in the earlier days, but nevertheless, in the world, there were various kinds of people. And as I said, one of the qualities of my mother is that she was terrifically interested in people and she didn't let those kinds of things, you know, she, she wasn't interested in whether she ought to be prejudiced against people she didn't have that you know she was really kind of a grand dame in the way that she was just very interested in accepting of people and so my books reflect that I think in that yeah there are people who who look askance and and um, you, you know, uh, worry about what happens if Terrell marries and what'll happen. What about the children? It, it's, it, I think the trick is to treat your characters like full human beings. That's all there is to it, you know, and then, and then you have to peel away some of the notions of today, I think. They didn't have a a concept of political correctness, but my parents had a very strong concept of of courtesy and manners, right? So it was a different, you know, it was an approach to people that was based on something different um, uh, than how we might see it today. So, you know, Terrell uh, doesn't have at his background, you know, the, the Black Power Movement or, you know, the more recent Black Lives Matter and all of that. But he had his life experience. And, you know, for him, it was like, you know, a rolling of the eyes kind of, oh, God, here we go again, kind of thing. Right. Uh, but he, like so many people of the period, is also a vet. Uh, from the war and uh, you know his his goal in life is just to get on with things Um, you know and he mentions in I don't know which book maybe the one coming that he really is happy because he gets to go to the movies uh, in Nelson Civic Center and even if there is a law about where black people ought to sit no one because there are so few black people I guess nobody actually says oh you you have to go sit upstairs so he likes that, you know, because in Nova Scotia, they have a law that the black people have to sit upstairs. 
So I, I just, I think that's really the answer is people just have to be people. That's the most important thing. If you're writing a character, they have to be a whole person. And, um, and you have to really try to imagine what the period was and to not have prejudiced ideas about it, because I'm sure there, there's no question in my mind, uh, there was racism. I mean, the kinds of things that people were called, uh, when I was a child, just as a matter of course, like every, every shortcut racist name you can think of was all around me from people. Right. So that existed for sure, but it wasn't everybody. Yeah. Are you a, a consumer of mystery novels and mystery TV? I am totally a consumer of those things. <laughs> what draws you to a good mystery novel or TV show? I think it's, again, for me, it's about the character. The characters for me are number one. And I hope that that's what draws people to my books, is that the characters are people that are interesting, that you might want to know, uh, that you uh, remark upon uh, at because they're doing things you're not sure you'd have the guts to do. You know, I mean, I wouldn't have the guts to do any of the things Lane does. I'm a very sheltered child of the 1960s. But um, that mainly is it. And I'm interested in the problems that have to be solved. In the problems that have to be solved. Uh, ter- My husband just found a lost earring. Is that not possible? <laughs> Death, you know, disrupts society, uh, you know, an, 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 un, uh, uh, an unfair death, you know, a murder and, uh, you know, how it gets stitched back and, and by what uh, force uh, the main characters, what force they bring to the business of stitching it back so that you can go on. Uh, the, these things always interest me. And I really, really like what I call the gentleman inspectors. You know the the gamashes and the and the um, I mean it's a really wide variety. You know Lord Peter obviously uh, is the ultimate of them, but there are so many who are not necessarily you know troubled by alcoholism and have children who won't call them anymore and all that. Um, so I, I I enjoy um, I enjoy yeah the gentleman inspector really and their approach. You know the courtesy. I mean. Darling is irritable, but he's still extremely courteous. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to hint a little bit at what's next for Lane? Well, I'll tell you the one that is uh, everybody asks me every single time I go out to speak. Now that they're married, when is she going to have children? Oh, gosh. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of like, wow. Well, my mother didn't have her first child until several years into her uh, marriage because she married uh, just after the war or just uh, before the war rather. Uh, And she didn't have me until she was 36. You know, Lane's only about 27 or 28 right now. So I'm not sure about that, but I was very interested in the whole business of Lane's sister. So the next book is really about uh, her sister. And in many ways, uh, I am accessing more and more, you know, my own family story. My mother and her sister were not close. It had to do with how difficult their father was, uh, their father, the spy. 
um, and how close her sister was with her father and how she had no relationship with him. So uh, all of that is getting worked in and they still have to have some sort of relationship. So um, that really is what happens and it sends Lane back to the UK. That was Iona Wishaw. Iona's book, A Lethal Lesson, was a finalist for the 2022 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.